In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Josh Greenfield, filling in for Michael. Yep, we have my good friend Joshua Greenfield, who has very kindly agreed to help co-host the pod today while Michael is gone. Um, Josh is a master of language, or master of translation. How did, how did, you, how did you refer to it, Josh? Uh, I think it's technically master of translation and interpreting. But I, I ah. much prefer how you introduce me. So yeah, say whatever you want. Just master of language. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today is a very exciting episode. We're going to talk about Ron DeSantis's little stunt with Martha's Vineyard. Uh, then we're going to do a segment in which we break down the... Uh, the anti-trans student policy that Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia just carried out and some of the horrific implications and results that will come from that. And then for our third segment, we're going to talk to a resident expert about what it's like to live in China during the COVID pandemic. Because Josh here happens to be living in China during the COVID pandemic. So we're going to have a discussion about kind of how that was like, what life was like in the country where it all started. And I I could not be more excited about that. Thank thank you so much for, for joining us, Josh. Of course. It's a pleasure. It's also the first time I'm going to be an expert on anything. So I'm also really excited <laughs> for that. True, true. Um, but before we get to that, speaking of things that we are the first time experts for let's do the COVID numbers. And I guess it's not the first time I've done the COVID numbers, but I never do them. So <laughs> I apologize that these won't be as in depth as Michael's, uh, but worldwide there have been about 616 million cases, which has resulted in 6.54 million deaths. So that's worldwide as a, Huge, significant number. Um, in the United States, cases are at uh, 96 million and deaths are at 1.5 million. They are definitely decreasing on both counts, but in terms of the raw numbers, that is still a significant amount. Uh, in terms of vaccination, uh, looking at, the, at worldwide, we have 12.7 billion total doses that have been given. And that means that 4.95 billion people are fully vaccinated, which is 63.4% of the entire global population. In the U.S., there has been 616 million doses given, and there have been uh, 225 million people who are fully vaccinated, which is 68.3% of the total population. So we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. Um, I do not envy the fact that Michael has to read those numbers every week. And his, his are actually a lot more in depth and a lot better because he's looking at five different things at once. 
just just a brief aside though um i well i haven't been listening to the pod for uh, a little while uh we've been kind of on the move and so schedules changed a little bit but um yeah i distinctly remember when we reached a million deaths and i heard it on the podcast uh i remember where yeah. i was walking i remember where i was in shanghai and that was not that long ago so um yeah it's kind of kind of scary yeah yeah well and at this point it's uh 1.05 million so that's another so that's another like 50,000 deaths from then so it's definitely slowed down at least but that million number that 1 million number especially considering the fact that I, i i still remember when donald trump said something about how like uh, what was it it was like if we could keep it under 200,000 like that would be a success <laughs> uh yeah oy. i'm i'm really glad oy. he's not our president anymore just <laughs> yeah you know, yeah really really that... you <laughs> weren't you weren't a fan of him <laughs> i um this may come as a shocker nathan but uh no Hmm. But. Well, it's 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 glad that we knew that now because I I wasn't sure when bringing you on the pod, um, <laughs> if we were gonna see eye to eye. So <laughs> well, that's your fault for not doing a pre pre pod screening. <laughs> that is true. I mean, we never do our research on this pod. Of so, course, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, I got nothing for research? you. We're talking about Ron DeSantis <laughs> research. I mean, is it really research? I don't know. You did research, speaking didn't of, you? I mean, we did do research. Speaking of things that I have researched today, <laughs> let's talk about Ron DeSantis. All right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we kind of use circular logic to get to that one, but I'm cool with it. I'm cool with as it. As long as we got here, I think that's the important part. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that has been talked about in the media quite a bit for the last week is that uh, on September 14th, Governor Ron DeSantis pulled a political stunt in which almost 50 asylum seekers and migrants from both the country of Venezuela and Colombia who were current who were in Texas were lured onto an airplane with promises of jobs and prosperity and sanctuary and flown to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts under the false pretense that they would be prepared to receive them. The people of Martha's Vineyard were not informed that this was going to happen. But what's interesting is despite that, the people of Martha's Vineyard actually did mobilize in order to try to support these people, these this influx of individuals that were, were coming into the area. So they they were able to set up housing, they were able to arrange food drives, water drives, and they actually did end up receiving them with open arms. And it wasn't until later that people realized that this was a political stunt carried out by Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is Ron DeSantis shipping people in Texas to Massachusetts, neither of which are the states that he's governor of? <laughs> That's a very good question, Nathan. And the answer... Yeah, that's a very good question. And the answer is, uh, I, I have no fucking clue. 
Yeah, I don't know. I was, uh, I mean, I was looking at that, uh, too today, obviously. And, uh, it, it just seems very strange. I mean, like, you know, Martha's Vineyard, I guess, is a less strange thing. But the fact that, like, it's Ron DeSantis's thing. And, uh, as far as I know, Greg Abbott hasn't, like, taken any sort of, you know, um, taken responsibility or, like, said that, you know, he was in on the whole thing. It seems very strange. Yeah. Also, they, uh, apparently there was a layover in Florida, um, but that was the extent to which they were in Florida. <laughs> like, they were all definitely yeah. from Texas, shipped on a plane <laughs> to Florida, and then on a layover, <clears throat> and then on a layover to Martha's Vineyard. And that was, like, the extent of their connection to Florida. So, it's very strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also... Abbott has done stuff like this before, like not quite to this extent, but he has actually been known for putting migrants on buses and trying to ship them to liberal cities. But this was much more overt in the way that they were just lied to. Um, there was actually, there was actually an individual who uh, is at this point is anonymous. There was a migrant who has talked to CNN about how he specifically had been used by this woman who uh, we only know her as um, Perla, who had apparently gone to Texas and tried to recruit this migrant to then try to get other migrants that were, were, were within the community, within the area. Um, and by the way, these were mainly asylum seekers, which means that they weren't even undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't even here illegally. They were asylum seekers, which means that some of them were actually waiting for their official asylum uh, cases to be decided by judges while this happened. All right. And as a result of being flown across states, they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to process the cases as fast mm -hmm. or as efficiently because suddenly the people who the case is about is in fucking Massachusetts. Um. So anyway, this Perla recruited this migrant. Um, she gave him $10 McDonald's gift cards that were supposed to be given to migrants who agreed to board these flights. Um, according to CNN, uh, she, she told them that uh, their kids would be treated well upon arrival, that they were going to help them with learning the language. They were going to help the children with studying. They would be ready to give them shelter. They would be, give the, they would be given sanctuary. And that... Um, and that they were going to be well received. And this, this individual, uh, who again, this, this anonymous individual who helped kind of spread that is now going to CNN and openly talking about how guilty he feels and how betrayed he feels for being a part of this. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just got to say like $10 McDonald McDonald's gift cards. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty absurd. That's that's what you're using in order to try to get people to be f flown across states. You're bribing them with ten dollars worth of McDonald's. I mean, at least make it Wendy's, like something that's <laughs> actually decent. Oh man, after not having fast food for I don't know, at least months, <laughs> like can no longer relate. Yeah, I've been following the story on on Reddit, and uh, there are a few subreddits that that have posted the same thing, and like you know seeing the different communities commenting on the whole thing has been really uh, interesting and frustrating at times because um, the subreddit conservative 
Um, they've been saying, uh, well, for a few things, they've been, they've been saying that they like the whole thing because it points out the, what do they call it? Like the hypocrisy of these, um, these like sanctuary, what, what are they called? Sanctuary states or yeah. Sanc- sanctuary yeah. cities. Sanctuary, and, uh, yeah. how, um, how that they, how they weren't migrants, but illegal immigrants and that we shouldn't have been sending them to Martha's Vineyard, but instead back to Mexico. I did not read that they were actually from Venezuela and Colombia. So, um, that really makes it a lot worse. And then the thing is like, uh, um, yeah, well, like I know a lot of, a lot of, uh, more like progressives, liberals, um, people who are not, you know, uh, conservative, I suppose, uh, have mostly been calling this like really frustrating because, uh, Ron DeSantis is using these people as like a political pawn. And then in the comments, uh, in the subreddit, I see that like people are accusing, uh, liberals of the same thing because they're like, oh, you know, uh, uh, San Antonio gets however many, um, immigrants every year. Uh, New York gets however many immigrants every year. Martha's Vineyard gets 50 and then, you know, they're suing. So like, you know, they're saying, well, that's hypocritical because they're using, uh, migrants as political pawns now. So it's just very frustrating how like, you know, all of this kind of commentary exists in, in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a few points on that. Um, first off, it's the migrants that mm-hmm. are suing because they were misled. It's not Martha's Vineyard per se. It's the migrants who are suing on the grounds that they were misled. All right. Secondly, the people of, so you could call it hypocrisy if the people of Martha's Vineyard responded to it by saying, ooh, get these people out of here. We don't want them. But that's not what they did. They actually responded through this community-wide effort to try to welcome them. Now, they didn't have the resources readily available immediately because Mm -hmm. they didn't know this was going to happen. But as soon as it happened and as soon as they knew, they started mobilizing. So to claim that this is hypocrisy is just bullshit. All right. The problem is the fact that you transported people without telling them where they were going. They were said, you're going to somewhere in Massachusetts. They didn't say where they were going. And they didn't inform the people of Martha's Vineyard that they were going to go there in the first place. So, again, if the argument is, well, because Democrats don't like this, that makes them hypocrites. Mm -hmm. That's just a dishonest framing of it. Because Democrats don't like it because you used people as pawns, not because immigrants went to Martha's Vineyard. All right. It's how they got there. All right. So oh, that 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 argument just that argument does not. Uh, unfortunately, there it does. Uh, that was one of the, uh, the, the most up, <laughs> upvoted comments. So you can go down there and, and see. Try your luck. See if yeah. you can, uh, you know convince them of their yeah yeah i'm sure i'm (laughs) sure that they're all big fans of the show uh um but it's just it you and and i'd also like to point something else out all right so the political stunt that ron DeSantis, the point that ron DeSantis was trying to make was oh you think that immigrants are so great well let me send them to you and see if you actually like them and then he did (laughs) and they actually liked them 
And so the big thing to learn from here is that Republican governors like Ron DeSantis, apparently they legitimately think, they legitimately think, Ron DeSantis legitimately thinks that the problem with the way that liberals or, or Democrats or people on the left view immigrants is based on the fact that they don't know immigrants, that they're not around immigrants. And if they had just been around immigrants, they would be just as fucking racist as Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they're not. <laughs> and you just gave a bunch of rich liberal elitists in Martha's Vineyard a reason to go brag about how <laughs> fucking virtuous they are. <laughs> you just did that, Ron. Yeah, that's crazy. So I, I, I hope that you're, I, I hope you're proud of yourself there. You just, you just uh, pulled a political stunt in order to make a bunch of liberal elitists look completely compassionate and completely reasonable. Meanwhile, you transported people over state lines under false pretenses. Well, they had court dates. Yeah, yeah. Some of them, yeah, many of them would have would have had court dates. Now, it's it's unclear how many of them were asylum seekers versus how many of them were actually uh, here illegally. Most of them, based on everything I've read, most of them, it looks like, were actually asylum seekers. But what's interesting is if any of them actually were undocumented immigrants here illegally, that could have made this a crime committed by Ron DeSantis. So Jean Reyes, who is an immigration attorney, uh, she recently wrote an article in the conversation in which she was laying out what are some potential laws that could have been broken by Ron DeSantis. And one of the things that she points out is the fact that if any of them were actually here illegally, the fact that he transported them could be criminal all right that it, in the united states it is unlawful to transport an undocumented immigrant anywhere within the united states and furthermore particularly if you uh if you knew and you actively disregarded that fact to which his whole his whole thing on this the, the whole thing that he's saying specifically is oh you like you like the illegal so much here you take some so if any of them were here illegally, he's publicly admitting that, which means that if that is true, he broke the law. He committed a crime. Which would be just sweet, sweet. Um, I, I don't yeah. know how else to describe it. That, that would be sweet. But on top of that, and the, th the thing that, that a lot of uh, people on the left are focusing on, the thing that the, the, the lawyers that are actually representing these migrants are focusing on, is the fact that transporting people over state lines under false pretenses is against the law. Um, so specifically for human trafficking, um, in order for human trafficking to occur, it must include exploitation resulting in some type of material gain. All right. Now, it is unclear as to whether or not DeSantis specifically received compensation for flying them to uh, to. Massachusetts in any like in any measurable way but the private airplane charter company oh. did so they did end up receiving money which if it is able to be proven that um that these immigrants 
were transported to a place through deception, and Ron DeSantis was an accessory to that, to this tra- to, to this plane company making money off of that, then that is something that could also potentially that he could be charged mm. with as, as an accessory. On top of that, it's also illegal to promise work permits if if you are doing it falsely. That is also illegal. Now, that's been alleged by the immigration lawyers. Um, the the individual who specifically talked about uh, how he was the the kind of go to between Perla and the other migrants, it doesn't. I, I in the, in the CNN article that I've read, it doesn't look like he specifically alleged that. Um, but that is currently being alleged. And if that did happen, then and Ron DeSantis was involved in that, then that that would also be a potential crime that he committed. All right. So that's that's three different crimes that he could have committed right there. Well, I have to say, I'm kind of excited to see how that unfolds. Well, the saddest part is like, so there's there's a there's a sheriff that has opened up an investigation. There's a sheriff in Texas that opened up an investigation into the matter. But I'm a little bit worried that because he is an elite, that he's mm. just going to get away with it. Um, that something like this is going to be deeply politicized, and politicized usually, um, usually results in stuff like this being swept under the rug because they just become partisan battles that a bunch of people dig their heels in and get angry about, which you would think that considering all of the time that Republicans spend, that elected Republicans spend screaming about human trafficking, you'd think that this would be a prime example of something where they can latch on and look at a real example of human trafficking happening. Now, human trafficking does happen, and there absolutely does need to be reforms in order to prevent human trafficking, and I don't disagree with Republicans on the fact that human trafficking is bad and that more protection should be put in place to prevent it. Now, some of them go weirdly conspiratorial on it and accuse furniture companies of uh, human trafficking children. Um, that was a big thing with uh, with Wayfair, where a bunch of people thought that they were like trafficking children. But you know, if something, if if weird conspiracies like that are able to help to uh, to pass laws that actually do help human trafficking victims, then great, I'm with you on that. Here's an example. Fucking do something. Well said. On top of that, let's talk about why they, why he did this in the first place. What he was trying to protest. So, Josh, what was what was Ron DeSantis trying to protest? Here? As far as I understand, uh, he seems to be protesting like the immigration laws or the immigration situation that uh, a lot of Republicans have been criticizing, especially uh, Kamala Harris for, like saying, you know, she's not really. Uh, thinking that it's all that important or all that bad. Like, she's just saying, oh, there's no problem there, then uh, whatever. But um, as far as they uh, seem to be concerned, there is a huge problem, and there are too many immigrants. Specifically, the criticism that ends up being made is the idea that um, there has been a huge influx of undocumented immigrants coming into the country, and that that is a direct result of uh, open border policies by the Biden administration. So here's the problem with that. It's complete and utter bullshit, and I can factually prove it to you. All right. So here's what they point to. So what they point to is the fact 
that uh, in the fiscal year 2021, all right, the year, the first year of Biden's presidency, uh, Customs and Border Patrol recorded uh, 1,119,204 border encounters, all right, meaning people trying to cross the border and that were encountered with uh, and that, that, that encountered um, Border Patrol, right? That is a huge uptick from the previous year, uh, 2019, where that number was 780,479, all right? So just looking at that alone, just looking at those two numbers alone, you might say, well, in 2019, Trump was president. Uh, in 2021, Biden was president. Look at that huge increase. Look at that huge uptick. All right. Clearly, Biden is doing something that is creating a major uptick of uh, of immigrants. All right. He's opened the borders and he's invited them to come in specifically. All right. But here's the problem with that. The reason why the number is so high is not because there are more people, more total people that are trying to come over. It's because of Title 42. Now, a lot of you have probably heard about Title 42, like you've heard about it in the news. Here's how it works kind of in, in simple terms. Basically, Title 42 was a Trump era COVID restriction that was put in place to basically say that immigrants who are apprehended at the border could immediately be sent back to Mexico. All right. So they catch them. They don't try to incarcerate them in any immigration facilities. They just send them back to Mexico. All right. Now, it was implemented further within uh, a little bit later in the uh, Trump presidency, specifically as COVID was starting to uh, was starting to uptick, was starting to increase. The problem with that is because of Title 42, when you just send people back, there are a significant number of people that as soon as they go back to Mexico, attempt to cross again. All right. So that number is not the total number of individuals. That's the total number of encounters, meaning that the number is inflated because there are multiple people who are being sent back and then try again and then become another encounter. So a much more accurate representation of the number of people who have been actually crossing would be what we call unique encounters, meaning that people who have not been taken into custody in the previous 12 months. All right. So if we look at that number in 2021 under Biden, that number becomes 690,718. By comparison, during the Trump administration, when Title 42 was originally put in place and was, was being used, um, not even on a, very, on, a, on a significantly large scale, um, that number was 721,328. Meaning that under the Trump administration in 2019, there were more unique encounters and it's, it's easier to find this number because, again, the, the number of uh, Title 42 examples were significantly less in 2019, which is why we're looking at that specific, uh, why we're looking at that specific year. But there were less unique encounters during the Biden administration, during the first year of the Biden administration, than there were during 2019 during the Trump administration. There were less. 
So the idea that the Biden administration is allowing for open borders that is creating more total number of immigrants trying to get in is just wrong. It is just factually incorrect. So uh, along those lines, I, I, was, I was actually reading um, some comments about this whole thing the other day, and there was a figure thrown around that during this fiscal year, we had over 2 million uh, encounters at the border. So, so um, I know that that's definitely an argument that's been made by, um, by Breitbart. It is true that when you look at the, uh, the uh, Customs and Border Patrol website, they say that uh, total encounters for fiscal year uh, 2022 um, through July was uh, 2,242,413. Um, and it doesn't look like they have the official breakdown of how many of those were unique versus how many of those were people doing it again. Um, but actually, but they do say on the website specifically, quote, the large number of expulsions during the pandemic has contributed to a higher than usual number of migrants making multiple border crossing attempts, which means that the total encounters somewhat overstates the number of unique individuals arriving at the border. So, so basically, we, we don't have the official number of how many of all of the unique uh, how many of the uh, those border crossings are all unique, but by its own admission, the Customs and Border Patrol website is pointing out that the reason why those numbers are inflated is because of those Title 42 expulsions and people coming back after they've been sent over. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Josh... Why do we do tips for good every week? Well, you see, Nathan, it's because I, I, I will always love you. Ooh. <laughs> Aw. I'll always love you, too. Oh. And you know what? You know what love does? What's that? Love makes the world a better place. Whoa. Crazy. Dude. Dude. Yeah. And that's also what Tips for Good is all about. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Incredible. So Josh, this tip came from your suggestion. So what is our tip for good this week, Josh? Well, uh, to preface this tip, I'm going to say that I think it is uh, perfect for the majority of users um, because it's something that like is a very small change, uh, not a lot of maintenance, not a lot of, um, you know, not a lot of effort that you have to put in, but theoretically it does a lot of good. So uh, I've been using this search engine called Ecosia for, uh, gosh, it must be three, four years now. And uh, what it is, um, Ecosia is a nonprofit that uh, just makes a search engine. The search engine is um, a little bit better than Bing, but... Um, but what they do is they take the uh, ad revenue that they get from all of your searches and they put that towards um, like uh, mostly planting trees. They say 80% minimum of their earnings go towards uh, initiatives to plant trees all over the world. And um, they also uh, try to keep good practices. So if you're a little skeptical about, you know, some of this, uh, you can really just... I was about to say Google it, but you can look it up. Um, 
it's ecosia ecosia.org and on their website they say you know what they do with their earnings uh they have information about a lot of their projects um they just help mostly uh they help um various communities grow trees and um uh and also just help the biodiversity in their na- in in their areas so uh, i know they do a lot of um, stuff with different organizations in Brazil. Um, they also talked about Burkina Faso and Mali and Indonesia. Um, and really they just give money to a lot of these things. And so, you know, you, you, you search more and you contribute more to, uh, planting trees all over the world. So. I like trees. Hey, (laughs) well, then I have the product for you. (laughs) and that's tips for good so for our second segment we're going to be talking about virginia governor glenn youngkin and some new policies that he's put out for virginia schools regarding transgender youth and we're talking about this because for one thing This does represent a larger push by a lot of GOP governors in order to try to basically take advantage of culture war bullshit within schools in order to gain political points at the expense of children. All right. So, yes, we're talking about Glenn Youngkin, but there's there are larger implications for the country when it comes to policies like this. So. With that being said, let's talk about the specifics of this policy and why it is so devastating to children in the state of Virginia. So the Yunkin administration rewrote Virginia's policies regarding the treatment of transgender students. The things that he changed, and these are reversals of policies, of, of executive policies put in place by uh, Governor Ralph Northam, who was the governor of Virginia before Glenn Youngkin. It says that all schools must implement policies in which students have to use bathrooms and locker rooms that are according to the sex that they were assigned at birth. It forbids trans youths from changing their names or pronouns at school without a parent's permission. It discourages staff from concealing a student's gender identities from their parents, regardless of whether or not the student wants to keep their transition a secret. All right. So, Josh, what's the what's the problem with that? Uh, well, <laughs> if you read and appreciated the model policy that uh, Ralph Northam put, put out, um, it said that. Well, it, it had a lot of statistics about uh, transgender youth, how they are uh, the most um, currently vulnerable population for bullying. Uh, they're most likely to, um, you know, uh, have bad grades and do poorly in school, um, maybe, you know, have depression or even contemplate suicide because of that bullying and because of uh, their treatment at schools. And so the model policy that uh, Youngkin is trying to replace did a lot of good for them. And this is going to suck. Yeah. yeah. 
So as it stands, there's this, there's this uh, queer youth activist at uh, Oakton High School in Fairfax County. Uh, I do apologize if I um, mispronounce the name here. Um, Rita Vizcardo uh, uh, Lichter. Um, she is a queer activist, and she is the lead organizer of the Pride Liberation Project, uh, which is an advocacy organization for LGBT uh, youth within within the state. And um, she told NBC, quote, I've heard literally hundreds of stories telling me I'm terrified for my own life. How are we supposed to focus on our classes like calculus or biology if we're worried that our teachers are going to out us to our unsupportive parents? So that's that's important because here's the, the Yunkin administration's uh, response to this, the Yunkin administration's defense of this. So first off, a spokeswoman for Yunkin said, quote, parents should be a part of their kids' lives, and it's apparent through the public protest and on-camera interviews that those objecting to the guidance already have their parents as part of that conversation. While parents exercise their free speech today, we'd note that those policies state that students should be treated with compassion and schools should be free from bullying and harassment. So she's pointing out the fact that there is this statewide walkout that a bunch of students staged in order to, to protest the event, which, by the way, kudos to them. We're talking middle schoolers and high schoolers. All right. Kudos to them. And the argument that she's basically saying the whole their parents are already involved in that is it seems that what she's saying is that, well, if they're being open about that, then they already have parents that don't really care about their gender identity like that, that are not going to be unsupportive. So why does it matter so much to them? Why should this matter? And the reason why it matters is that point that uh, that the young woman said earlier, which was a lot of these people, a lot of these kids do have unsupportive parents. They have unsupportive parents at home, and sometimes their only ability to actually be themselves, act like themselves, is at school. And teachers are unable to help them through that. All right, to help them through that. And her argument about, well, we have policies that say you can't bully. I mean, Josh, you and I were in the public school system. Like, we saw that bully, like how bullying happened. Whenever they mm -hmm. tried to do anti-bullying initiatives in, in middle school or high school, it always fell flat. It was just them trying to do something that like, it was, it was them trying to look good. It was never them actually trying to do something that would make people's lives better. All right. And now let's actually spend some time looking at some important context that demonstrates why this is just so fucking devastating and why this is actually this policy right here is going to lead to more suicidal ideation among trans youth in Virginia. So the Trevor Project uh, did a survey in which they they conducted using um, using. 34,000 LGBT youth ages 13 to 24 across the United States. Um, and what they found was that 45% of LGBT youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. This is a survey that came out in 2022. 45%. And of those, a majority of transgender youth a majority, more than half, of transgender and non-binary youth 
have seriously considered suicide in the last year. And one in five have attempted it. One in five. One in five transgender and non-binary youth have attempted suicide in the last year. More important context. The survey also showed that youth who felt high support from their family reported attempting suicide less than half the rate of those who felt moderate or low social support. And fewer than one in three transgender youth found their home to be gender affirming. Fewer than one in three. All right. That is a majority of them in unsupportive households. All right. And here's an, here's a really important one. LGBT youth who found their schools to be LGBT affirming reported lower rates of attempting suicide. If a majority of transgender youth are in homes that are not gender affirming, that are not safe for them, and we know that if they find that safety, if they find that affirmation at school, it lowers their attempts of suicide, then it is not unreasonable to make the statement that right now in the state of Virginia, as, we start the, as we've started this new school year, there are transgender youth in the state of Virginia who are alive that by the end of this school year will not be because of this policy. Because Glenn Youngkin made this policy. All right. To him, it's probably some fucking culture war bullshit. At the end of the day, you are killing children and you're doing it in order to cheat, in order to score cheap political points. All right. Unfortunately, not all parents are supportive and that sucks and that's terrible. And look, I do think that parents should be involved in the education of their children. I do think that. But if a majority of trans youth are not seeing that support at home that they need, and the only place that they can get that support is at school, and you take that away from them, at that point, you are actively working against them. You are actually hurting them. You are, apt, you are actively hurting them. And it's especially really frustrating uh, to see some of the commentary on this. Um, <clears throat> there, there are unfortunately a lot of people that are in support of it. Uh, thinking that, you know, who knows better about their children's education than their parents. And uh, that Yunkin is, is priding himself on the fact that this new model policy is going to uh, prevent discrimination and bullying for all students rather than, I don't know, <laughs> privileging trans students. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it's complete bullshit. I mean, they they tried to the office tried to stress that the guidelines directs the schools to prevent gender discrimination or harassment against all students and, quote, attempts to accommodate students with distinct needs, including students with a persistent and severe be and sincere belief that her gen that his or her gender. Got to love that his or her gender differs from his or her sex, you know. Gotta love the binary there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, like, how can you say that? How can you say that this is helping them? Trans youth, trans activists, actual trans people are telling you this is hurting them. They're, they're telling you that. How can you claim that this is for them? And honestly, how can you claim that this supports them when you even, like, even beyond just the 
the bullshit of of parents or of, of teachers are required to tell parents and the fact that uh, a student is not allowed to use a different name or a different pronoun unless their parents give them express permission on top of that you're you're not even saying that they can use the fucking bathrooms that are associated with with their gender identity you're you're even saying that how can you possibly sit there and saying in any way that your policy is going to reduce harassment it is absolutely going to increase it all right and it's going to increase rates of suicide northam with all of his flaws he at least based his policy on actual facts actual statistics actual surveys actual science Yunkin mm -hmm. is basing his policy on the fact that um that running on this this non sequitur, this red herring of parent choice is what is what got him into the governor's mansion. All right. Again, I'm not saying that parent choice as a principle is a bad thing. All right. Parents should be involved in their kids education. But kids should also feel safe to be who they are. And sometimes parents don't let that happen. All right. Parents have their own idea of who they want their kids to be because they want to live vicariously through their kids. And that's a natural thing. It happens. And I'm not saying that that automatically makes somebody a bad parent. But what does automatic, automatically make you a bad parent is if you do things that actively drive your kid to suicide. And unfortunately, being in homes that are not supportive does actively drive them to suicide. I guess I guess one thing that's really frustrating about this this whole um, trans argument is like this idea that um, people are just like imagining it, or that it's it's liberal parents that are pushing this like trans agenda on their kids. But um, actually, there there is evidence to suggest that even like during the golden period of ancient Greece. <laughs> people were were disassociating with their genders. And in yeah. a lot of other cultures, like you find that as well. Um, I heard about how that comes about in um, some, some of the countries where um, a form of Islam ends up taking um, precedence legally. So where uh, certain, certain forms of attire are, are enforced. And so the way that gender dysphoria um, which is not the same thing, but it's related, uh, it plays, plays out in these societies. And so um, I read or I heard somewhere that uh, people will, will just start like dressing as a woman um, and kind of like taking on the social role of a woman um, and where, where like men and women in society are um, supposed to fill different roles like that is that is much more pronounced and it comes about in a different way than it does here. But it's not like a US exclusive problem. It's not a like 2022 exclusive problem. And it's not yeah. like a youth exclusive problem. So so I I hate the fact that instead of like trying to better understand what is going on, because you know, I, I also understand that it's it's hard for some people to um get used to these changes. That that instead of saying um, him for, or he for somebody that somebody knew as a, as a man is now, uh, identifying as a woman. And so instead of saying he, you have to say she, or instead of saying whatever, you have to say they, 
Because yeah. I, I understand that that's not what people are used to, and for people who don't understand it, it can be uncomfortable, but I hate that the, the, the reaction to it is just doing very politically loaded things instead of finding, yeah. you know, you know, understanding exactly what's going on and educating people that, you know, uh, I don't know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, <sighs> yeah, I, I completely agree. It doesn't need to be a political issue. It, and it really shouldn't be a political issue. Yeah. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, I consider a lot of aspects of the culture war to be more so to do with education mm. and less to do with an actual culture war. Like that, that doesn't mean that education cannot be an important part of activism, but at the end of the day, I think that people like to have these fights because I don't know, they, they want to affirm their own way of life on everybody else. Mm. And that often causes them to, uh, to take these issues of of individual disagreements or individual or not even disagreements per se, but just different ways of living and turn them into some type of, into some type of war, some type of, uh, some type of battle. Mm. And I, I don't, a lot of this shit just does not need to be politicized. Uh, I was just going to say, it's also, um, ironic and, uh, that much more frustrating that like, one of the one of the you know ideals of the Republican Party is um, is decreased government outreach. So like or just yeah. any <laughs> you know government power, the government telling you what to do. Yeah. And then this this is exactly the opposite of that. Like teachers yeah. teachers and students cannot <laughs> refer to uh, uh, transgender youth as the as the pronoun that they prefer. They have to do it based off of their uh, sex at birth. And they, like, you're enforcing people to go to uh, a certain bathroom or, uh, you know, play on a certain team. But, like, that is that is the opposite of, like, that runs counter to that ideal. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole Republican idea of limited government or personal freedom, it was always bullshit. It was always bullshit. Social, social conservatism, by its very nature, is authoritarian. You know, is people trying to impose their own way of life on other people through laws. All right. We saw this through the debate when it comes to marriage equality. And they even tried to pretend like, oh, no, this is freedom on our part. And that just didn't ring true for anybody because it's like, no, you have the freedom to marry whoever the fuck you want. We're saying that we should extend that to, to, to gay people. All right. Nobody's forcing you to be gay. Nobody's enforced. No one's forcing you to marry. If you're a man to marry a man, no one's forcing you to do any of that shit. All right. And actually, I think you stumbled upon a really good point, And it's one that I've made on the podcast before, which is the fact that Democrats, leftists, liberals, they need to start co-opting the language of limited government and personal freedom because the fact that the right has a monopoly on that is just a, it's just, it's a, public relations nightmare that Democrats have not seized on that, you know, because you have a much better argument for personal freedom and for limited government for that matter than the Republicans have or have ever had. So now it's time for one of our favorite segments, 
D-Bag Award. So, Josh, why do we do the D-Bag Award, and what is it? Well, the D-Bag Award, in case, well, you didn't know, Nathan, is, uh, <laughs> it stands for Dershowitz Bag, and it, it, it's, uh, was it Alan Dershowitz? And it, yep. he was given the award, the first award, because he gave the most self-defeating argument. Yep. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was that fateful time that he stood up in front of the House of Representatives and proclaimed that Donald Trump could not possibly have done anything that rose to the level of impeachment because the president must act in the nation's best interests. And when he cheated in an election, tried to cheat into, in an election to coerce Ukraine into buying weapons, he thought it would help him win, which he thought was in the best interest of the country. Therefore, he couldn't possibly be impeached. <laughs> Still gets me every time. Still gets me every time. Yeah, wonderful. So, Nathan, who is our D-bag for this week? Well, we actually have a double D-bag this week. A D-D-bag. A D-D-bag. We have a D-D-bag this week. Because there are two arguments that were made by two people of uh, a similar caliber of intelligence um and uh similar and in similar positions that i just had to give credit to so our d-bags this week are candidate for georgia senate hershiel walker and candidate for pennsylvania senate dr oz and i could not be more excited to present them these awards for these fucking self-defeating ass arguments that are both in the same realm like basically we have two gop senate candidates within like the last week that have both like just made their candidates sound cooler and look cooler just by talking <laughs> so so first off we have hershiel walker who was speaking to savannah morning news uh which i guess is a a, a news outlet in georgia um and when he was asked how he was going to prepare for the showdown against the Democratic incumbent, uh, specifically uh, ahead of the debate, he said, quote, I'm not that smart. He's a preacher. He's smart and wears these nice suits. So he is going to show up and embarrass me at the debate. And I'll just and I'm just waiting to show up and I'll do my best. Dude, what? Wow. That sounds like worse <laughs> self-confidence than I have. Yeah, I actually, I almost feel sorry for him now. Like, you told a reporter that you're not that smart and that your opponent is going to embarrass you at the debate. You, you don't say that. You don't say that. Why would you do that? Also, if you're not that smart, why the fuck are you running for Senate? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why he's running for Senate. He's saying he's saying that his opponent isn't as qualified as he is because he's dumber. So obviously he's more qualified for Senate. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, actually. That's a good point. We do have people like uh, Ron Johnson in the Senate, so I, I can understand that. Um, but God, and if it's as if that wasn't bad enough. All right. You got to hear the shit that that Dr. Oz pulled recently. So. One of the things that we, we, we've, we've talked about Dr. Oz before and how he just keeps face planting and keeps face planting over and over again in the most hilarious possible ways. 
But he literally gave uh, John Fetterman, his opponent, a campaign slogan. He gave him a campaign slogan. All right. So he was being interviewed on a podcast and he was talking about Fetterman's clothing. All right. Which, by the way, if you're a candidate and you talk about your opponent's clothing, you're already losing. Like you've, you've already lost. Because if you if, if he is so much better of a candidate than you that like you can't talk about any of the policies and you resort to talking about how he dresses, dude, you're already fucked. Uh, so anyway, he said, quote, because by the way, um, Fetterman usually dresses in like hoodies and stuff. All right. Hoodies and, and shorts. So so Dr. Oz said, quote, when he dresses like that, it's not an accident. He's kicking authority in the balls. He's saying, hey, I'm the man. I'll show those guys who's boss. I'm not going to allow any traditional path to succeed. <laughs> I'm, he's kicking authority in the balls. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> you just made him sound like a total badass. And within like, uh, within the fucking day... Uh, John Fetterman tweeted out, um, quote, DC could use a kick in the balls. And he put out a new campaign logo that says Fetterman kicking authority in the balls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. God, you know, John, John Fetterman, man, it must be really, really nice to have both candidates in the race campaigning on your behalf. <laughs> oh man. Must be must be really nice cuz I mean honestly I think that John Oz has done just as good of a job in campaigning for John Fetterman than John Fetterman. And that's not even a dirt on John Fetterman. He's actually running a pretty good campaign. But uh he's had a lot of really polite help from Dr. Oz and that's very nice of Dr. Oz. What a nice guy. What a nice guy. What a nice guy. So a deep and hearty congratulations to Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz for being this week's Dershowitz Bag. So for our final segment, we're going to be talking about what it was like to live in China during the COVID pandemic. Because Josh here lived in China during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. You know, that's where he became a master of language. <laughs> um, and that's, that's where he learned to speak literally every single language ever written. Well, uh, well if you're saying nice things about me, I can't really, you know, that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do, you, how, let's, how many languages is it now? Like you speak, you speak English, you speak Russian, you speak French, uh, you speak Mandarin. Uh, what else do you speak? That's that's kind of it. But like, uh, that's still I a guess, lot, dude. Well, it's still a lot. Yeah. Since I have the platform, though, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, like speaking a language, I, I feel like can mean a lot of different things. So so I can translate uh, Mandarin and I do a little bit of uh, Russian as well. But like, you know, the the level that you require to to do those things for I don't know you know different topics and different directions it's all different so like yeah. Chinese is the only like really good one 
then Russian, you know, I have a pretty good grip on understanding, uh, at least when I can write, or when I can see it in writing. Um, but French, French has kind of uh, gone down a little bit, so, yeah. But I, I've been working on a lot of others, so I dabble a lot, but that doesn't mean I speak anything. Um, anyway, yeah, so... Yeah, so let's, let's talk about China. So first off, how, what years were you in China? How long were you in China? So I was in China uh, for a year and a half before the pandemic actually started. So that was 2018. Uh, and I was there a total, like living there a total of four years uh, with a few breaks, um, mainly before the pandemic, because you couldn't really, or as a student, you couldn't go back to China uh, once the pan- pandemic started. It's it's a little bit better now for some countries, but I believe they still have a, have a closed borders for the most of the world. For students yeah but yeah um well i guess i can say that uh it kind of depends on what part of the pandemic that you're asking about um so so let's let's start with the early days of the pandemic like when sure. it was first starting to become a pandemic. first off um I, I i i don't remember everything about how it worked i just remember um the early days of uh, starting to hear about COVID, uh, which was like at the beginning of January, I think, mm-hmm. um, was when I started hearing about it a little bit in December. Um, when did things start to, when did it start to become clear that it was getting bad in China? Um, well, first of all, I remember that, uh, pretty clearly. I remember I went, uh, so, so I flew back home over the winter break. There's, there's a little bit um, uh, later than ours, so it was mid-January. So I came back to the U.S. mid-January, and I went back to China on the 22nd of January. Um, by that time, uh, people were already starting to wear masks. When I got onto the plane, uh, almost every single person had a mask. And uh, I remember the guy who sat next to me did not have a mask, and he started looking around, panicking, and then he... Um, asked asked around until he got one um so well good for him yeah people yeah actually uh so so what you're saying is that you're the one that brought covid to the united states <laughs> what get out of here it's, uh, so what you're saying is you you brought covid to the united states man is that, it was it sounds like that's what you're saying it was in <laughs> wuhan until i don't know when but man also i was super isolated in school you do well, actually, you probably can understand, but freaking yeah. But anyway, masses in China. Suck. Anyway, uh, so so continue after after you got back to uh, got back right. to China. What 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 were what were what was happening? So uh, yeah, I went. I flew to Beijing. Um, my girlfriend at the time, uh, now wife. Um, uh, Wait, you got married? Yeah, I I remember. You must you, have had a really man. You, you talked must about have had that a on the super, podcast. You must have had a super attractive best man. Oh my god! <laughs> One of my best men, and okay, sure. you're you're not bad, I guess. But uh, but yeah. So so at that time we were going to spend the Chinese New Year in Beijing, and when we got there, I remember that there were a lot more masks than uh, there were when we left, and and masks. Um, you know, thankfully in China and in Asian countries, as far as I understand, is not, um, is not like, it doesn't have the same sort of stigma 
um, that it does like yeah. in in the U.S. as far as I understand in other countries with similar cultural um, things. But uh, yeah, now it's a lot worse because of the pandemic. But before the pandemic, you know, a lot of a lot more people were okay doing that. I got my mask in the yeah. um, in the airport, and then you know wore a mask the whole time there. Uh, yeah, but. But yeah, so I remember people were wearing masks and it was basically like normal life, except you were a little bit worried about coming in contact with other people. Uh, I remember we tried to choose restaurants that were a little bit off the beaten path, uh, a little bit less touristy, uh, things like that. And then in in the matter of a week, uh, things started closing down big time. When, when was that? What month was that? That was still in January. Still in January. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, so, yeah, maybe up until the 27th, 28th or something. And uh, I think it, it might have been like the 28th when they actually uh, quarantined Wuhan. Um, as many of you might remember, was the, uh, the epicenter of the original COVID outbreak. And uh, that's when everything in the country started closing because people started freaking out. So... Uh, originally we were going to check out like the Forbidden City in, in Beijing and we were originally going to uh, go to a nearby city, Tianjin. Uh, but we found out, you know, hotels were not going to host people anymore. Everybody was going back home. Uh, all of the tourist sites were closing down and like, you know, society kind of just like stopped pretty, pretty um, quickly. And then I think on the 20, 28th, uh, my girlfriend and I at the time, um, came back to Guangzhou, which is where we were going to school and, uh, everything was empty. You know, like most people went back home. Um, most people do that over the winter holiday. So it wasn't surprising, but it was just kind of like much more dead than we had remembered. There were a few restaurants that were open. We were thankfully able to find a, a hot pot restaurant. It was the, the best thing. One of the best things in China, hot pot. Uh, we found one for my birthday, which was the 29th. And, uh, and then, yeah, uh, and then I think it was the day after that we were no longer allowed to come outside the school. So, um, mm. yeah, things started closing down really quickly. Um, and then we were inside the school until I think, I think July, something, somewhere around there was, was I think the first time we were able to go outside on our own, um, but so were you were you going to classes or were you doing them online? Yeah, so we we actually classes had the semester was delayed for a month and then we started online. We were online for that entire semester and then my school we were actually um uh offline the following semester. But uh I know some schools did it differently. Guangzhou um like the it's either municipal government or the provincial government. Uh, in Guangzhou or Guangdong is pretty strict. So, um, like I know that they are still kind of semi, uh, quarantined in school. Like it's hard for them to come out of school, especially foreign students. But anyway, it was, it was a new thing there and, you know, people understood it. Um, both, both, uh, my wife and I were actually both really supportive, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic because, uh, at that time, you know, there was a chance of containing it. And so like... Yeah. It was it was scary because you know it was a huge shift in what we had to do. We couldn't we couldn't go out to restaurants. We didn't have a or I didn't have a kitchen of my own in my dorm. Um, my wife did, so she was able to make food and stuff. Um, but like 
nobody understood uh, when we could do things again, where we could go. Um, you know, staying inside <laughs> all the time is kind of weird. And especially for a lot of people staying at home with their parents was uh, frustrating because um, for, for a lot of my uh, fellow students, the stereotype about like strict parents who always want you to like find a girlfriend or get a job or be working on homework or doing all those sorts of things, really high expectations. That was true uh, for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend actually that hates being home because she just hates talking to her family, uh, largely because of, you know, the expectations and the requirements that they have for her. But, um, but yeah, it was scary mostly because we didn't know like how it, um, how it spread. Um, so like before it even hit, uh, hit the U.S., like we kind of had a grip on things, um, I remember I was scared to like see anybody in campus except for my uh, wife. And <laughs> I actually remember there was this one, there was this one, uh, there was this one time when one of the, one of the like administrators in my building, they're not really administrators, but like, um, like their role is kind of that of like being at the front desk and, uh, and doing all the organizational stuff for the dorms as well as cleaning. So, um, we call them IEs, which just means like auntie, aunt. Um, and you call older, older women that, but it's kind of also, it's like social thing. So, um, anyway, one of the, one of the IEs came, uh, to clean my room and I, I was like, well, I don't, I don't need it. I don't want to see you. <laughs> like there's this whole <laughs> pandemic and we don't know what's going on. And, um, she just like came in and started. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like slowly to myself or like silent, silently to myself. Um, but, and, and I just like tried to kick her out basically as, as quick as possible. So, uh, it was, it was hard for some people to adjust to it at first, but then I think it, it started getting better and, you know, they're really strict now. Um, a lot of people, especially in the school are like ridiculously, ridiculously worried about it. So up until the time when we left, which is basically when it was kind of under control everywhere else in the world, um, like they didn't want us to go anywhere. And we said, like, you know, if we asked for permission to go outside and go to this part of the city because we wanted to, I don't know, see a restaurant or something, um, they'd be like, oh, there's there's COVID there. They found a case. <laughs> like, hmm. we, we don't really want you to go there. And it, it was kind of crazy. But I realized that I'm kind of jumbling all of it together. So why don't you ask some, some no, questions? No, that, to... no, no, that, no, 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 that's totally fine. That's oh, okay. this is. Um, so one, one thing that I am wondering about is, so you, you were uh, kept abreast of how things were in the United States, right? Kind of the, the mentalities, the attitudes. Uh, I know that I talked to you a little bit about what things were like during that time. Um, hmm. based on your understanding of how the United States dealt with it and kind of what life was like in the United States, what are some key differences do you, that you think you could identify between like what it was like in China and what it might have been for those of us in the United States? Uh, well, for one, it was never politicized. Like wearing masks, getting um, getting the vaccine was never politicized, never stigmatized in, in China. Um, so yeah. there was absolutely no problem walking around in a mask all the time. There was no problem like getting a vaccine or anything like everybody was always just like um or at least on paper worried about it but um one of the frustrating things later on during the pandemic is that 
like there was a there's a huge mismatch between um between what the government was doing and what they kind of like admitted to and what uh people like in normal life were doing um in china so <clears throat> so even though there were like strict policies and everything and like uh, you know, they told everybody to, like, disinfect everything all the time and wear your mask all the time. Like, you would go out into the street and see a lot of people are not wearing the masks. And that was especially frustrating being in a school in, in Guangzhou at the time, because, again, Guangdong was a little bit more strict than some of the other provinces. Um, like, we were mostly confined to the school uh, unless we had a specific reason to go outside. Uh, this was kind of different for foreign students and Chinese students, which was also a, a, a source of frustration uh, for some time. And so... How, like, how, was it, how was it different between foreign students and Chinese students? Uh, well, the thing was that uh, it, it, in terms of administration, like things are different. So uh, my wife and I, we were both students. We took classes with the uh, translation department. But we were technically students of the, like, global education office, or uh, I forget what they call it. Um, there are different translations for different schools. So, um, yeah, so for them, it was, it was different. And so in order for us, as foreign students, to go outside, we needed written permission um, in the form of, like, like uh, a document uh, to, be, to be approved and stamped uh, by our, like, global education office, Whereas um, at some point, mm, I can't remember exactly when, but it felt early on, uh, the, the Chinese students were able to um, do something in like WeChat. So WeChat, uh, if you don't know, kind of is, um, is a part of most aspects of daily life in China. And so there are these, like, they call them mini programs in English. Um, and so what it is, it's kind of like, uh, an app that runs within WeChat. So, uh, you know, most businesses or most things that you, you need to do, you can get like a mini program for that to run inside of WeChat. So uh, one of those that we had was one to check like, you know, where are you every day? Uh, how are your, like, do you have any symptoms? Um, you know, things like that. And so uh, like the Chinese students were able to have that and they had a function on it where they like asked to go outside and it was much easier for them. They could do it like basically whenever and it didn't have to go through the same red tape that it did for us. And um, like, it was really frustrating because like, even though, you know, we are much less likely to go and see friends on the outside because we have no friends on the outside because we're foreigners. <laughs> um, like a lot of the Chinese students were able to go and see like, I don't know, their friend over here or, you know, they, they know all of these different things They're maybe they're locals of Guang, Guangzhou. So they go see their family and their family works. And so the, 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 the risk of getting in contact with somebody with COVID was much higher theoretically for these Chinese students than it was for us foreign students, but yet we were held to um, a much higher uh, requirement than they were. Eventually it got better and then kind of worse again. Um, it was, it was it's just kind of like administration things for, for our school and also the provincial government. It was really frustrating, but um, I actually had a different perspective on it when I went to Shanghai. Uh, that was, of course, before <laughs> Shanghai got locked down, too. So, um, yeah. Uh, 
Interesting. So out of curiosity, what was the general sentiment that people in China had about like who was to blame? Because I know that in the United mm. States, it was all like, oh, this was China. China did this. And like to an extent, I think I think there are definitely some criticisms of the Chinese government in terms of not being willing to just shut down because there was like a period of time that they said where if they had shut it shut everything down for like two weeks that mm. they could have prevented it but they were so afraid of the impact on the global economy that they didn't do that um so i know that it's not quite as acceptable to criticize the chinese government as it is in the united states mm -hmm. um but i mean based on your conversations with people what were some of the gen general sentiments about who it was that was responsible for this or who was to blame for it? Or was that not even really part of the conversation? Uh, well, you heard different things from different people. It also depended on which time. Like, uh, you, you might have heard about the doctor who originally discovered something going on with uh, some, of his, some of his patients getting pneumonia in Wuhan. Like, he was... He was um, I, I remember when he got in the uh, spotlight in the media, like it, it was actually, so, so it's interesting because like criticisms of the government are less, uh, cool there, but you still see it happen sometimes. Mm. And, yeah. um, that was one of the times when it did actually happen. So, uh, when, when it became clear that this doctor, um, I forget what his name was, like something, like Li Wenliang or something. I can't remember. But, um, yeah, this doctor, um, I think it was around when he died, actually, of COVID, <laughs> um, that people started to get really upset about his story. So uh, he he tried to, like, publicize some of his information about uh, about this pneumonia that he was finding in Wuhan, um, like, right around when the pandemic actually started, before people started paying attention to it. And he was silenced, I think, by local authorities. Um who, who didn't want to, like, cause a stir or something. That's as far as I understood. But it, it actually caused some outrage on, uh, at least in, in my friend circle on WeChat, because I saw, you know, a ton of people posting about this doctor and, like, that this is kind of crazy. Um, and then you didn't see anything about it a few days later. So, you know, that's the censorship going on. But, um, but you do see, like people speaking out about things at times. And that was one of the things. And so I think that's when, that's what people refer to when they say that like China botched the whole thing because, um, yeah, because, uh, yeah, because that doctor was silenced, but I kind of doubt that that was something orchestrated by the central government. Um, I feel like it was something that like, somebody at the local government could have done because, you know, having, having this, you know, having problems for people who are in charge of things, um, is not good. Like when they have to answer to their superiors. So, uh, there's, there's this issue, I think in a lot of parts of Chinese society, as far as I understand, um, you know, I, I definitely don't understand it as, as well as many other people, but just one of one of my observations is that there tends to be a disconnect from what's going on on the ground and what gets reported to uh, the top, because like ultimately you'll have to answer to somebody 
and uh, admitting that you have problems or admitting that things are not like that great, it's really bad for uh, a Chinese person. Um, because yeah. like, not, not because you'll just get like punished and like, it's going to be your fault, but because, um, well, I mean, at some point, you know, somebody's going to blame you, but, uh, because if you want to like keep your job or, you know, keep your face, uh, or whatever, like <laughs> you don't want anything to happen to that. So, um, yeah, things, things tend to get dealt with in a way that, um, causes less of a stir in terms of like, um, public discourse. And so I, I personally think that's kind of what happened. So, um, I think there was an opportunity for China to like seal the whole thing, but I think like to some extent you can't fully blame them for not like completely understanding what was going on at the time and not wanting to slow yeah. things down. Uh, I think you can definitely blame them now for that. But, um, <laughs> anyway, at the time, since it was like new, um, and like after, after SARS, I think they didn't want to like be that country again. Uh, yeah. And they did like shut down, you know, some of their biggest cities. Wuhan is a, is a really big, uh, what do they do there? They, I, I forget exactly what industry there is oh, in what industry is there, but, uh, I know they're pretty important for the Chinese economy. So like, I think it was kind of understandable at that point. The fact that the rest of the world had so much warning and then they botched it up was also yeah. really frustrating. Like, so, so the way that I view it is that uh, I really liked China's approach at first. And then once COVID spread basically everywhere and everybody had it and uh, Delta was no longer the thing that everybody worried about, then I think every other country's approach to it was much better because... Uh, mm-hmm. China's China's economy right now is is um, not doing too well, and uh, well, I, I lived through the Shanghai lockdowns, and that was horrible. So imagining that a lot of other people are having to go through that same thing um, is just ridiculous. And was that the was that the closing days of the pandemic there, or at least the closing days of you being there? Uh, yeah, uh, I was in. So, so the Shanghai lockdown, um, it coincidentally kind of coincided with the beginning days of the, uh, Ukraine invasion. And so it was late February, I believe that, uh, some districts of Shanghai were starting to get closed down and then, um, it spread to us. So I was, I was locked down for like, it was just about two months and I know they were in lockdown for maybe a week after I left. Uh, and then like a, just about a, a month and a half after, after that, I left China for good. So yeah, it was, it was closing days. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, want to talk about the, um, the Shanghai lockdowns. So uh, yeah, as I said, I was, I was locked down for two, two months and uh that was especially really scary because uh a lot of the logistics stopped like um you know you, as opposed to guangzhou in the opening days like uh where people could still order food to the campus uh we could not do that in shanghai um they just completely closed down and so i'm thinking that's that's probably what happened in wuhan definitely in the opening days 
and maybe what's going on in uh, I know Chengdu recently got got locked down, and uh, there there's a part of um, Yunnan province in the south that had problems, like for for months starting out. But so so my experience was, uh, you didn't know how to get food. Um, occasionally the government said send things to everybody, so it was like, you know, the equivalent of like top ramen, those like microwavable noodles. Um, and some small things like that, but it was not enough to live on. So, like, ultimately you had to find your own food. Um, as a foreigner, I don't know anybody in Shanghai. <laughs> so, um, like, I didn't know that while while I was sitting uh, and, like, literally going hungry for, like, four days because I was just living off of the stuff that I could find, um, like, other people were orchestrating uh, these these drop-offs of different supplies and um like what what really changed my perception of uh of like china's whole approach to the whole thing is that like shanghai is one of the most developed places in the world it's it's like uh it's i think it's over like 30 million in in commuter population <laughs> Um, it, it's one of the, the places where like rent is the highest and there's so much money is brought into, uh, like the world in Shanghai and you could starve because, because they just botched up the whole logistics of that whole thing. Like I, I was literally living on, on like, um, it was like rice and then a few other things for a few days, like like, I won't say that I, I starved because, like, I don't even know the whole extent of what some people go through. But but being hungry for several days at a time and having nothing more than just, like, simple grains sucked. <laughs> and yeah. and that is what some people have to go through, um, either because they don't they don't know the right people or they don't have um, contacts or, like, logistics still are, are a nightmare. Actually... Uh, I, I saw something in Chengdu, um, it was maybe a month ago, uh, where, where kids were starving because, uh, a lot of the people mm. with COVID were brought to, um, these like, I don't know, COVID camps or, uh, I, f I forget what they called them in, in English, but, um, but yeah, like, like lots of families, kids screaming, because logistics was such a nightmare for getting food that they were starving. Like, yeah, that is unimaginable. And I think like maintaining the, the zero COVID policy while that is still going on is ridiculous. And so living through that in Shanghai was definitely the turning point when I no longer could understand their policy. But kind of before that, I thought, you know, maybe they were in the right for a little bit. All right, and now we're going to end our podcast as we usually do with our highlights. So, Josh, what's your highlight oh. this week? My highlight this week. Um, I I kind of I kind of have two. <laughs> is, that, yeah. is that okay? All right. Well, uh, so my wife finished up with her the work that she had to do last last month. Uh, we're freelancers now, so you know. 
it's not like a nine to five. And she had like a whole bunch of uh, work that she had to do over the last month and she finished. So she was able to relax for a few days and I think she can still relax, but she wants to get a head start in the next month. So anyway, it was really good seeing her being able to, uh, you know, finally have some time to, to cool off after, after, uh, at some point working for a week without, um, a, a weekend. And then my other highlight is, uh, you know, well, for one, talking to you and two, you know, being on the show because, uh, well, yeah, it's great talking to you, man. Yeah, you too, man. It was, this, 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 this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate having you on the pod, bro. Uh, and I'm I'm glad that it was a good experience. Yeah. Um, what was your highlight? My highlight is kind of a preemptive highlight. Oh. So this weekend is going to be my uh, the the speech team that I coach is going to be their first tournament, and mm. I'm really excited for them to travel. Really excited for them to share their messages with the world. And um, you know I know that they're very excited. So. Uh, it's just it's just always a fun time of time of year when you start seeing those speeches grow into uh, what what they were always going to be. Well, that's great, man. And with that, we will thank our patrons and do a shout out to our patrons um, for helping to make this show possible. So a huge thank you to uh, Jerry DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom and Tobias Janssen. And if you would like to become a patron, then you should check us out at patreon.com slash the perspectrum. And to you, dear listener, thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.